0: Uppsla Podcast Episode 7 Gary McGraw on Security Welcome to the Oopsla Podcast. The Oopsla Podcast brings you up to speed on topics covered at this year's Oopsla Conference, which takes place in October 2007 in Montreal, Canada. The Oopsla Podcast is co produced with Software Engineering Radio and Dim Thinking. This episode is an interview with Gary McGraw, a well known security expert, on security principles, best practices, and their applications in online games. Gary runs a tutorial at this year's UPSLA conference. Please welcome your host, Software Engineering Radio's Michael Kirchel. Gary, why don't you introduce yourself briefly?
1: Well, it's good to be here, Michael. I'm Gary McGraw. I'm the CTO of Digital, and I'm a software security expert, which is what we're going to be talking about today.
0: Great. So, so how did you get started in, in software security at all?
1: I got started in 1996, which was about 11 years ago now, and what happened was I was very much interested in programming languages, and in particular, when Java came out, I thought that it was going to be fantastic to have a, an advanced programming language for the web, and then, of course, I got it when it was in alpha, and it turned out to be more like C++ with a few web bells and whistles thrown in than it was like my favorite programming language, which is Scheme but I got very much interested in the claims that Sun Microsystems and others were making about Java because they were saying things like any code that you write in Java can be secure. And I thought, what in the heck are these guys talking about? So I started getting very deeply into Java security, and I ended up um, helping Ed Felton and the guys at Princeton um, to break the Java virtual machine many, many times. We got lots and lots of press, and, and we learned a lot of interesting lessons. And then I wrote a book called Java Security with Ed. So after that, it really made me wonder why it was that these incredible language designers and these incredible engineers like Gosling and Guy Steele and Bill Joy had screwed this up. you know. And if you were a builder of systems and you wanted not to screw things up from a security perspective, where would you turn to learn how to do that? In particular, if you were a developer, where would you turn? And you know what the answer was? The answer was there was nowhere to turn. So I decided to blaze a new trail and uh, start working on software security right about then.
0: So I, I wonder what kind of mentality, what kind of talent do you need to break uh, VMs to, to be so interested in, in breaking other stuff?
1: yeah i you know that's a good question i th- I grew up that way um you might have i don't know if you have in Germany these little cars, these toys that you put in a slot and they run on electricity you press a button and and the cars drive themselves around. Do you have those cars
0: yeah, we have them as well
1: yeah so so that was called a-, a aurora racetrack in the mm-hmm. states, and uh I had one of those cars, and the first thing I did was take the car apart, and figure out how it worked. <laughs> And I figured out that it had an electromagnetic motor in there. And I also sort of knew a little bit about how those motors worked. So I took some copper wire and put a few more little lines on my motor so that it would be more powerful. And then my car would beat everybody else's car because it had a, a more powerful motor. Of course, I never told anybody about the extra lines. <laughs> but if you if you did the wrong thing back then, if you pressed the button all the way down, the car would fly off the track because it was too powerful. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but but you know I was born with that mentality. So when it when it comes to technology and it comes to especially programming things cuz I've been programming since I was 16. Um you know, I actually 15. 1981. I I I've, I've always wondered um how things really work and and what you can do to learn about how they work and 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 uh take them apart. So
0: if Absolutely. you would have to explain software security to, to a person, what where would you start? Which topics are most relevant? Uh what is already what is the problem and what is already a solution when we talk about authorization, authentication, non-repudiation and th- yep.
1: stuff like all, that All top my head. All in 5 minutes or less. So so um so software security is about how to approach computer security if you are a developer or a software architect. And so the key to understanding security, in my opinion, is having people who build our systems think carefully about security while they're building them. And there are a number of best practices that I've identified over the last decade working on this that I believe all developers and all software projects should take advantage of. There are seven touch points, I call them, which are these best practices. Uh, I'll give you an example of the top two touch points. One is using a static analysis tool, which is very much like uh, works the same way as a compiler. You you run it against your code in order to find security bugs in your code. And if you run a tool like that, it will find bugs like buffer overflows and simple race conditions and the kinds of small defects um, or bugs that people write in their code all the time because they just don't know any better. Um, C and C++ are particularly bad about having many, many ways to shoot yourself in the foot from a security perspective. And so we need these tools to help us identify places in the code where we've made a mistake. Uh, Another touchpoint, an equally important touchpoint, is called architectural risk analysis. And the idea there is to look for higher-level defects in your software system that happen at the design level. It just so happens that if you think about where defects are in software from a security perspective, it turns out that there are two major categories, bugs in the implementation and flaws in the design, and and they they chunk up about 50-50. So if you did a perfect job writing your implementation in C++, say, and you didn't have any security bugs, you could still have some big security flaws. For example, you might forget to authenticate the user at all, and that would be a design issue. And my practice and Microsoft's experience and everybody who's been working on this for the last decade, we all agree that that we have to solve both the implementation problem and the architecture problem. And that's what my book, Software Security, is all about.
0: Okay, I guess also reviews are part of that because I might have uh, the feeling that I designed it right and, and secure, but uh, I I need some other person's feedback maybe or trial to exploit it to, to be really sure. How ca- Can I ever be sure that there is no flaw, no security uh, hole in, in there anymore?
1: Yeah, so both architectural risk analysis and code review with a static analysis tool are kinds of review. Um, and... The answer is that no, you cannot be 100% certain that you've found all of the security problems. But if you do consider um, the code and you do consider the design in light of security, you're going to be a lot better off than if you just sort of willingly ship code and don't think about security. And so though there's no guarantee, it's very clear that when it comes to um, certain kinds of software, in particular financial services software, or software that controls, say, power plants or or uh, uh, telecommunications or um, uh, transportation uh, devices, that that, that that kind of software really needs to go through the security ringer. So we've done that kind of review for, geez, almost a decade now. There's a funny story, though. I, you know, I've broken many, many, many systems. I can't even begin to count the number over the years, um, me and my guys. And about 80% of the time when you go to a software team and you say, hey, we found a security problem in your system and uh, let us show it to you. <laughs> their reaction, even if they pay you to do it, their reaction will be, well, you're not supposed to do that. That's not allowed. You know, No user would ever actually do that. And we have to very carefully explain to them that we're the bad guy, right? <laughs> that we're not playing by the rules and that, yes, bad guys do, in fact, do stuff like this. And that's part of, uh, part of software security is getting people to understand how to think like a bad guy. What is the
0: first thing that you do when you try to break a software?
1: Well, the first thing you do is you think like a bad guy or you think like somebody who really wants to understand how the system works and then determine what kind of assumptions that the designer of that system made. So to go back to the car example from before, you know, the assumption that the people who made that little car game had made was that nobody would take the cars apart and re-engineer the cars to be faster. And that that assumption turned out to be not a very good one. <laughs> and so, see, bad guys will take a look at a system and say, oh, look, they're assuming that the user will always put in a name. What if we put in a script instead? Or, look, they're assuming that, you know, input will only be... uh 300K or whatever. How about if we put in a terabyte and see what happens? And and those are the sorts of things that you always try first. Now, you can do that in a very principled way. In exploiting software, we identified a whole bunch of things that we called attack patterns. And the attack patterns are you know, 48 ways to think about things that attackers usually do when they see certain kinds of, of software. And I think if you internalize some of those attack patterns, it helps you to think like a bad guy in a more interesting way.
0: One thing that came to my mind is uh, open source software might be more dangerous or uh, alluring more attacks because uh, guys like you, they, they can figure out from the source code where the weak points are and then try to attack exactly there. What, what is your opinion there?
1: Am I right that, or, that, or wrong? That turns out to be wrong, but you have many um, very good reasons for thinking it's right. So let me explain why it isn't. Um, it turns out that in order to carry out an attack against a piece of software, having the source code is certainly helpful, but it is by no means necessary. And most people who do software exploit actually use the binary code um, you know, as the target. And you wield things like decompilers and disassemblers, and you look at the stack as the machine is running, and you know you keep track of you, you use a lot of debuggers and, and low-level things. And so um, in my experience, having the source code is you know not really a necessary thing. So um, it, it turns out that open source is in not really in any worse shape than any other kind of software, because of the kind of tools that attackers use um one other thing to note there open source is also no better off from a security perspective because there's this theory that you know there're many eyes looking at it and so everybody will find the bugs and the bugs are transparent but i believe that that's just complete you know baloney bull feathers is what we call it over here
0: <laughs> okay so uh Let's get on uh, to your uh, latest book, uh, Exploiting Online Games. So Mm -hmm. who is concerned with that? Like only the gamers or or can you also uh, derive some lessons learned for for everybody using the Internet?
1: Oh, absolutely. There are lessons learned for everybody. Um, I learned a lesson in my career of writing all these books. And the lesson that I learned was when you write a book about how something breaks, everybody wants it. And it's a bestseller. And when you write a book about how to do software security properly, it doesn't sell near as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, so if you want people to understand the software security problem, and you want it to be widely understood, the only way to do that is to write about how things break. And I learned that lesson, you know, uh, more than once, and I can tell you that it's absolutely true. I call it the NASCAR effect. You know what NASCAR is? Yeah, I know NASCAR, but
0: still explain.
1: Well, people watch NASCAR, um, which is a kind of car racing, um, so they can see these guys crash their cars and sometimes die. Uh, (laughs) And that's why humans are interested in watching NASCAR. It doesn't have anything to do with car architecture or safety or, you know, actual races. It has mostly to do with spectacular crashes. And so I think that computer security shares Things by analogy, the same yeah, philosophy.
0: Sad, sadly enough, but but true. Yeah, yeah I can guess. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, so the the getting back to these online games. These games have become hugely popular. Like, there's one game called World of Warcraft. You've probably heard of. It has eight million subscribers. Eight million people oh, wow. play that game on planet Earth, and they're on. In every country, you know there are two and a half million in China, a million and a half in the United States, lots and lots in Europe, and the the uh, the the subscriber base is very large. The world is available in many many languages, um, and as a result, because all these people are spending time playing a game, um, and it's it's an adventure game, so you have characters and they get levels, and you can gain experience points, and you can find pretend gold and you can buy virtual swords of heinousity and, you know, blunderbusses of flatulence and all sorts of other items. And it turns out that these pretend items have real economic value in the real world and that there are companies set up to buy those items from gamers and then sell them to other gamers acting as a middleman. The biggest company um, that does that is called IGE. Because of this, you know, there's incentive to Get, gain wealth in the game and have your character you know go as far as possible. Not just psychological incentive of having a cool character, but also real monetary incentive of, "Hey, I can sell this if I want." So because of that, as you might imagine, cheating is unbelievably rampant. All sorts of people cheat. Um, for example, you might want to have a program called a bot play your character for you while you sleep. So you set up a bot so that your character stands in front of a monster hole, and whenever a monster comes out, it kills it. And you come in the morning, and there's a big pile of gold and a bunch of dead monsters. So that's that's one of the, one of the examples um, from online games. Now, let's get technical for a minute here. The way that these games really work is by having a bank of central servers that are connected over the Internet to fat clients on PC. So the gamers each have their own PC and on that is a big program that, you know, displays um, things about the world and the character and all that stuff. It's kind of your view into the universe. Well, as you can imagine, the internet is not fast enough. It's not even fast enough for you and I to talk over Skype without jitter, right? (laughs) Right. We had that experience. Exactly. So it's, it's not, it's also not fast enough to push all the possible state to all of the gamers at once. Because, you know, there may be 8 million subscribers, but about 500,000 people are playing this game at any one time. So right now, when you're listening to this podcast, there are half a million people playing World of Warcraft together. And, um, you know, the Internet's not fast enough for all this stuff to happen in perfect synchrony. So the way the designers have approached this problem is by taking a piece of the state of the universe, which is stored on these servers, and cracking it off, and handing that state over to the client program, the game program on the on the gamer's PC. Now, imagine that you know how computers work, and all of a sudden you get all this state from the game on your own PC, and you want to cheat. Well, there's some obvious things you can do, like let's find out what kind of state the game is providing me with. And here's a real example from World of Warcraft. The game keeps track of your character's location by allowing your game client on your PC to track those XYZ coordinates. And they're just stored in memory somewhere. So if you find out where those are stored, you can directly change those coordinates, not through walking or running or flying, but instead by just programmatically poking new values. And then those new values will be sent to the central server and your character will teleport across the universe. (laughs) Amazing. It's awesome. It's really, it's really incredible. And as you can imagine, this ability to teleport throughout the universe becomes extremely useful in cheating and also in, you know, fighting other players in player versus player combat or other monsters. (laughs) And we explain in the book you know, how this works and actually show code to do that teleporting and ping ponging and other, other techniques. So that, that's the, now, now here's why this is important. One more thing. The, these huge distributed systems with, you know, hundreds of thousands of users are exactly what we are setting out to build in SOA and Web 2.0 systems today. And so my belief as a computer scientist and, you know, a guy who does research in computer security is the the kinds of problems around state and time that are very common in these games like World of Warcraft are exactly the kinds of problems we're going to see for a decade to come in all of this other software that we're building um, for SOA and web 2.0 uh systems
0: one of the motivations to talk with you uh is the the Oopsla the Oopsla conference so you're giving a tutorial on the same topic
1: so I'm going to be talking about uh, the best practices that I described at the beginning of the podcast, how to do code review with the static analysis tool, maybe even show you one of those tools in action, and how to do architectural risk analysis, the way that we do it at Sigital. And I'll probably use exploiting online games as fodder for examples so that we can show you know in living detail how some of these exploits work in a real system, so that people get an idea about how this can be very, very much concrete. But that's the, that's the plan. should be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah,
0: me too. So, any final words you want to say? Any message to our listeners?
1: Well, I, my final word is that I'm, I'm hugely optimistic about software security. There are a lot of people who express a lot of pessimism about security and they say, oh, woe is us. We're never going to solve these problems. We should all just despair and stick our heads in the sand and maybe even, you know, flip burgers for a living instead of work on software. But I'm not like that. I think that we, over the last 10 years since I've been working on software security, have made huge amounts of forward progress and that... I think the time has come that most people who are building systems understand that they need to worry about security. They're just not quite sure what to do yet. And so the time of teaching people how to do the right stuff from a security perspective is now. So I'd say, you know, my final word is I'm optimistic about the progress we've made and I want everybody to help. So come help. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Gary. You're absolutely welcome. That was really fun, Michael.
0: Thank you for listening to the Oopsla podcast. If you want to know more about the Uppsla conference or if you want to get additional Uppsla podcast episodes, visit the conference website at Uppsla.org. This episode as well as all the other episodes of the Uppsla podcast are licensed under a Creative Commons license. The intro and outro music is by a band called Plugs. The song is called Go East.